0: Well, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. We're so excited uh, that you're here. We always love uh, gathering together and worshiping God. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3, we'll be finishing up that chapter uh, today. Uh, it is on Your Faith weekend, so our students have been uh, worshiping the Lord all weekend and, and being discipled and growing in their relationship with God. Uh, if you see one of them in a red shirt that says on Your Faith, uh, just, uh, yeah, tell them how proud you are of them. And I can think of a thousand things that I would be doing in high school and middle school. And a lot of them were not uh, studying about God and how to grow in my relationship with the Lord. So, man, what an incredible privilege. Uh, Frankie and his team are doing an incredible job. So we're just super excited about what God's doing uh, in them. Also, before we jump in, you should have received a card uh, when you walked in this morning. And on that card, it should say that every person... Uh, has a purpose, and so uh, one of the things that you guys have probably heard me say over and over again is that I believe that God has a purpose for your life, and I don't just believe that. The Word of God teaches that, and so uh, one of the ways that God uses uh, people uh, is through serving in the local church, and uh, right now, uh, currently, we have about 50% of our adult attendants serving, right? So look to your right, look to your left. And tell the person to the right or left that, hey, you need to be serving. Um, And so if you're here and you're one of the 50% that are serving, uh, I want to say thank you. And uh, God is using you in a very powerful way. Uh, If you are here and you're not one of the 50%, and maybe for some reason you're not serving uh, in an area of the church, I want you to know uh, just a personal invite from me to you uh, that I believe God has a purpose for your life. Uh, I believe that God has gifted you and sent you to Connection Church for a specific reason. And so we want to utilize the gifts that God's given you uh, and we wanna see God use you in a powerful way. And so uh, we'd love for you to sign up and serve. There's a bunch of different areas on here. We also have a text code. If you wanna text the number, text serve to the number on the screen. Uh, We can get you signed up that way uh, as well. And so I just want you to know, and i tell you this story. In John chapter 2, I told you before, uh, when Jesus turns water into wine, uh, you know, one of the coolest parts of that story to me uh, is that the only people that actually got to see the water transformed into wine were the people that were serving the wine with Jesus. And I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the people at the party... All they knew was that the wine had come out and it was better than the wine before, but the people that are actually serving alongside of Christ actually got to see him transform uh, the water into wine. And I want you to know that some of the greatest uh, transformation and the greatest miracles that you'll ever experience in the Christian life will be through serving. There's nothing crazier and more awesome uh, than watching God use ordinary people like us serving to transform the life of other people. And so I don't want you to miss out on that. So definitely, if you're not serving, please sign up uh, to serve. So that's my best uh, invitation at that. If you don't want to serve after that, then I don't know what else to do for you. So um, John chapter three, verse 22 is where we'll begin. Uh, So John, the author John's jumping back into uh, a story about John the Baptist. And so we talked about him a few weeks ago and uh, we'll jump back in here. So verse 22 says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing, that's John the Baptist, at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. And this was before John was put into prison. So remember again, I told you the Gospel of John was written after uh, the other three Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels. And so by the time John was writing, uh, John the Baptist would have already been beheaded and killed. And so he's thinking back to a time uh, before he was in prison and before he died. And he said this was a situation uh, that he remembers happening. And so uh, one thing I want to point out to you in that is that notice that baptism was a big deal. Uh, To both John the Baptist and to Jesus. Uh, And I think that's important for us uh, to understand. If it was important, if baptism was important to John the Baptist and to Jesus, it should be important to us. Uh, You know, when Jesus left us in the book of Acts, he left two ordinances uh, for the church to practice. And those two ordinances were baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so uh, baptism is a very, very important part of being a church. And so you guys know what we teach on that. And I want to just explain it to you because there's probably people in this room right now that you have not been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that baptism is the first step of obedience after giving your life to Christ. And so if you're in this room and you uh, have began to follow Jesus and you've never been baptized after you've made that decision to follow Christ, then it is a decision that you need to make. And Jesus would have that invitation before you. And so the best way to think about it is baptism is all about going public uh, with your faith. You're basically publicly proclaiming that Christ has done a work in my life. I've died to myself. And now I've raised up in newness of life to walk with Jesus and to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. And you do it, namely not for yourself, but more for the sake of other people to know what God has done in your life. And think about it this way. If you're not willing to publicly uh, proclaim that you're a follower of Christ with the church family, there's no way you're going to go out into a lost world and proclaim the name of Jesus to anybody. And so it is a huge step if you have not taken that step We would love to talk with you about that. I'll be outside after, and you you could definitely stop by, and we can talk about it. Verse 25, so an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing, right? So again, they're baptizing people. Uh, Some of John's disciples and a Jewish man are starting to argue about uh, ceremonial washing. That's kind of an Old Testament term, basically, uh, you know, before a priest And before Jewish people could come into the presence of God, they would have to go through these ritualistic ceremonial washings to basically clean themselves to come into the presence of God. Um, Let me grab my Hey, back on. All right, so uh, basically the ceremonial washing would have been essentially a time... Um, where they would be cleansing themselves to come into the presence of God. So if something about John the Baptist and something about Jesus baptizing people had just sprung something up in these people to say, like, what's going on? Is baptism the same thing as ceremonial washing or, or what exactly uh, is going on? So verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man Jesus uh, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look He is baptizing, and everybody is now going to him. So we got a bit of a situation here. Uh, It's kind of a ministry competition uh, situation. John's disciples are worried that more people are now going to Jesus uh, than that are staying with him. So they're panicking a little bit, like, hey our church was supposed to be the coolest. Now he's baptizing people and people are going to him. So now he's cooler. Like what the heck's going on? John, are you not worried about uh, this stuff? The new guy's basically taking all of our people. What's happening? And uh, if there's one situation in the entire Bible that reveals how awesome uh, the heart of John the Baptist was, this is it. Because uh, if there was one Uh, drop of selfish ambition and envy and jealousy and pride or competition in John the Baptist, now would be the time for it to come out. But you'll see in just a minute how he responded, and he responds in an incredible godly way that we can learn from. But before that, I want to jump into uh, the situation because I have a feeling that some of us, probably including myself, would not have responded in the same uh, way. Uh, because I want to just dive into this sin of envy. How many of you guys have ever heard the term envy or jealousy or rivalry? Uh, well, those things are in the Bible, but a lot of times, you know, we like to talk about the big sins, you know what I mean? Like, it's easy to have conversations about what we would label as the big sins, but when it comes to sins like Jerry Bridges, who wrote a book called Respectable Sins— Uh, you know, envy would be one of those respectable sins that nobody really knows what's going on, so if it exists in your heart, it's not that big of a deal, you know, nobody can see it, uh, let's just do it. But here's the issue. When envy and jealousy and pride exist in our heart, it really does lead to some serious uh, destruction uh, in us. And nothing reveals the sin of envy and jealousy faster in us than the success of other people. Uh, Specifically, it comes out Uh, When another person has something that we want or another person receives recognition or affection from another uh, that we desire. And so that's when the sin of envy comes out uh, in us. And it can look a thousand different ways, but we can become envious and jealous of another person's money Uh, their recognition or privileges or advantages, uh, their looks and appearance, beauty, uh, their health, uh, personality, abilities, their talents, their skills, uh, accomplishments, achievements, their popularity, positions, job status, uh, their prestige, uh, even their intelligence, knowledge, or education. Uh, You can become envious of someone's family, their spouse, uh, their friends, Uh, relationships all of those things uh, really and social media just pours gasoline all over this because everybody uh, portrays themselves on social media uh, now where in the you know if anything happens to anybody boom you know it immediately and it begins to stir this uh, sin up in us and jesus said if this sin of envy and jealousy is left undealt with in our lives it really can cause some serious issues namely it will prevent us from loving others Because envy is the opposite of love. Uh, Envy does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn, which is what 1 Corinthians tells us that love is. Instead, envy, uh, in its sick and sinister way, rejoices when others mourn um, and mourns when others rejoice. And so it does not love people well. It begins to make you uh, bitter inside and and you can't really be a good friend to anybody because you're focused on yourself and you're not uh, content. And so that's what Jerry Bridges, who I would recommend that book, Respectable Sins, to anyone. He says there's only one cure for the sin of envy and jealousy. And here it is. It is to find contentment in God. And so when you're content in God, then good things happening to other people or success or other people doesn't really affect you because you're fulfilled in Christ, right? And so we can actually love others through their good times and bad times in a healthy way because we're not envious or jealous about them because we've found contentment in God. So again, let's watch how John the Baptist responds to this kind of sticky situation that could draw out a lot of sin in him. Verse 27. To this, John replied, John the Baptist replied, A person can only receive what is given from them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy... Is mine and it is now complete. And Jesus must become greater and I must become less. So, what a response! I mean, it it literally, I don't know that we get a greater response to temptation in the entire Bible, other than Jesus, than this response. In a time where literally John the Baptist should be, uh, had to be tempted. Uh, to think he was doing something wrong or or there was failure or, man, everybody's going to him, what's happening with me? Like, in that perspective, uh, we just see him respond in such a godly way and we can learn so much from the way that he responds. First, we can learn from his perspective. Verse 27 and 28, we can tell very simply that John trusted in God's sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Sovereignty just means God's control over the situation. He knew that God was in control And that anything good that happened to him in life, in ministry, was a result of God's grace in his life. For him to grow frustrated and angry or unhappy or jealous with God for taking people away from his ministry would be uh, to act as if it was because of him that people came and followed his ministry in the first place. And so he knew that God brought these people to him, and if God takes them elsewhere, then that's God's decision. My job is simply to be faithful. And we don't just see this in the life of John the Baptist. Paul uh, showed us this in the book of 1 Corinthians too. Remember, we studied this last year. 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of... uh, argument and rivalry between pastors like Paul was one of the preachers some people liked him Apollos was another one of the preachers some people liked him Peter was another and there was just a bunch of like no I want this guy I want that guy I want that guy and so Paul tells them in first Corinthians 3 5 through 7 listen to how he responds to all this jealousy and division uh, that envy was causing he says what after all is Apollos and who is Paul They're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed of the gospel, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, he says this, he says, the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant. Favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? Does that sound familiar language? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You see, what John the Baptist had the same perspective as Paul. He knew it's not about me. I am not the hero in this thing of Christianity. Look to Christ. It's about Christ. I love the story of one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the world uh, whose name was William Carey. He was a great missionary to to India. And uh, there's a story uh, as he was lying on his deathbed, just as he was about to uh, go and be with Jesus in heaven, he looked at his friend beside him who was taking care of him, and he said this statement. I want you to listen. This is powerful. When I'm gone, don't talk about Dr. William Carey. Talk about Dr. William Carey's savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified in and through my life. And may our ambition be the same as William Carey and John the Baptist and Paul. Secondly, we can learn from John the Baptist his joy Notice he talks about joy, and he uses this example of a bridegroom, Christ being a bridegroom and, and a best man, the friend of the bridegroom. And, and John the Baptist's role uh, is, is he compares his role to uh, the best man. He's saying Jesus is the, is the groom, and I'm the best man. And, and what he's saying is that uh, his role was to prepare the wedding festivities and to make sure that the wedding went smoothly. The best man's job was to make sure that the bride was there and the wedding could begin. And once the groom showed up, his job's complete. He did exactly what was asked of him. You see, John's joy did not come from popularity. It was not affected by influence. His joy was seeing the bridegroom appeared and his joy was complete in the coming of Christ. Not just because his mission was successful, but because Jesus was there. Like that's where his joy was found, not in circumstances or ministry or anything external. It was found in a person of Christ. And he says, just as the best man finds joy when the bridegroom and the, and the bride are joined together in marriage, I find joy uh, when Christ is here because it's his voice that I've been looking for the whole time. Not only that, but his motivation. Thirdly, John's motto in this passage was, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. There's not a better life verse for us to adopt in all of the scriptures than that. There's not a better verse for us to say, man, if I could choose one verse to characterize my life, what would be it? It would be this one. John's purpose was not to achieve fame or recognition. His purpose was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. He lived so that Jesus might increase, so that his fame would increase in the world. I want you to write this down with whatever you got. In your phone, uh, with your lipstick, in your journal, whatever you got, I want you to write this down. Success in the Christian life is about bringing Jesus glory. Simply. Success in the Christian life. Success As a follower of Jesus, success in ministry is about one thing, and that one thing is bringing glory to Christ. And on the opposite end of that, failure in the Christian life comes when we stop thinking about Jesus and we start worrying about ourselves. And So if you want to be successful, think about Christ. Make much of Christ. If you want to be a failure, then start worrying about your own glory. And, and I call this the ministry drift because even as a Christian, uh, you know, we receive the Holy Spirit and at some point in our lives we want Christ to be famous in and through our lives. But what tends to happen as we begin to wrestle with sin is that sin in us causes us to want that glory back. Like, okay, I want to make much of Christ, but I also want people to think that I'm a good person. I want people to, you know, I want people to see me. I want people to praise me because part of that feels good to our flesh. We want people to know how good we are and all these things. But, but it's really a lie because contentment's not found in the praise of others. Because if you live by the praise of others, you'll die by their rejection, right? So we can't go down that road. What we can do is focus on the glory of Christ and living for the audience of one and we have to fight that and so when that desire comes which will come often as a Christian if you're not a Christian your whole life is about you like that's the point of the Bible that you're born into sin and all you want to do is live for you and do what you want to do when you want to do it right and so in that case you need to to get saved and realize living for you is empty it's never going to satisfy you because you weren't created to live for you you were created by God for God to live in a relationship with God for God, and so uh, this world will be a rat race, and you'll constantly be chasing after things that won't fulfill you, and trying to get more of what already won't fulfill you uh, to fulfill you, which is the definition of insanity, right? To, to to want more of something that already hasn't satisfied you to satisfy you, and any other thing other than spirituality, you would be like, yeah, that person's stupid and they're crazy, but for some reason. When we start talking spirituality, for a person to continue to chase after the same things over and over again that already hasn't satisfied them uh, for satisfaction is like, yeah, that's, that's normal. That's okay. No, like the Bible brings tremendous clarity into that. But as a Christian, we must fight this drift to make things about us. And we must fight it with accountability. We must fight it through repentance. Every morning that we wake up, God, I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live for you. God, show me what that looks like. Show me how I can make this life about you because I know that's what I'm created to do. Verse 31, now the author John, not John the Baptist, but the disciple John, the author, the apostle John is writing the gospel of John, begins to throw his commentary into this situation, and this is what he says. Verse 31, the one who comes from above, that's heaven, is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Notice above all, above all. He's trying to make a point. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gave the Spirit without limit. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything. Somebody say everything. Everything in his hands. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. If you haven't caught on uh, to what John's trying to do in the first three chapters of this gospel, uh, it is very clear. John has a specific purpose. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God. And he doesn't really leave us much room to doubt uh, because in any court case, when an eyewitness comes and testifies, it is always a big deal because the eyewitness will be the most important testimony of the case to determine the verdict. Well, John is an eyewitness of Christ. And so when he's writing this book so that you and I can believe, we can trust it because he was there and his motivation is just, hey, I saw this, this is what happened And this is what what it is. And so from an eyewitness who's telling us this, he leaves us no room to doubt in his writing. He says he has come from above, we saw that, and he is above all. And he was sent by God the Father as God the Son to reveal God to us. He's God, he's the Word made flesh. He is the light, the Christ, the King, the Lamb, the Son of God, and God has honored him as such. That's who he is. And John's saying, I saw it. I've, I've, I've experienced it. I've touched him. I know this is who he is. And then he goes to verse 36 and he says, whoever believes in the son will have eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. You know, there's great reward in believing in Jesus. And that reward is namely eternal life. And you say, Billy, what is eternal life? Well, John 17, 3 is going to tell us that eternal life is not just going to heaven. Eternal life is being in relationship with God, being in a relationship with Christ. So essentially what that means is that when we uh, give our lives to Christ and surrender and repent and turn from our sin and believe in Jesus, we can start eternal life today because we're reconciled into a relationship with Christ. That's what the reward is. We get Christ. That's the best gift that we can ever get. But there's also massive consequences for rejecting and not believing in Christ. And those consequences are there's no life. You will not experience life as it's designed to be. And the wrath of God will remain on your life. You'll be separated from God forever and notice the word remain what what that means is remain means that we're all born with the wrath of God resting upon our life this is what the Bible teaches that we're born into sin because of Adam and Eve every person that's born into this world is born in the lineage of Adam and Eve and because of their sin we all now inherit a sin nature and we know this to be true not just because God's word teaches this but because we've experienced this if you've had a child or you've grown up as a human being, you know there's an intrinsic desire deep down in you to do what you wanna do and when you wanna do it. To reject God, I don't wanna do what you want me to do, I wanna do what I want to do. And that lives inside of each of us, and a baby is an incredible example of that. And the Bible basically teaches because we are born that way, because we are born in rebellion, rejecting God and wanting to be God in our own life, that the wrath of God, a just God, must punish that through sin, and the wrath of God rests on us. And so when we get saved, what happens is we go from the wrath of God resting upon us, we believe in Christ, we repent and turn from our sin, and we are justified, which basically means now in God's eyes, his wrath no longer rests upon us. Now his favor rests upon us. Right, We are, uh, because of Christ, in Christ, we are now made right with God. God has nothing against us because all of the punishment that we deserved was poured out on his only son, Christ. So now through faith in him, we receive Christ and Christ received punishment. That's the whole idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that the invitation is here. But it is a serious reality that all of us need to come face to face with that if you are not a believer of Christ and you have not surrendered your life to Christ, that the wrath of God reign, remains upon you and will remain upon you. But God, the good news of the gospel is that God's provided a way out of that and into a right relationship with God and that way and pathway is through belief and that's what John wants us to understand. So that's our passage. So what do I want to do with it? Well, a couple of things. I want to show you three things uh, in this passage that I believe can help us as Christians in an everyday life. I, I believe these things are practical applications of this. And what I want to do is I want to look at the example of John the Baptist. You say, Billy, well, you looked at that a couple weeks ago. I did, but listen, there's, you can learn so much from the life of Of John the Baptist. He's an incredible example for all of us. And there's three distinguishing qualities that I see in John the Baptist that I believe all of us should pursue, that I believe a a Christian obedient to God wants these things to characterize their life. And God uses people that are characterized by these qualities that only come from the gospel. The first is humility. Humility. We see John the Baptist in his words, verse 27 and 28, they say it all. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. I am not the Messiah. I'm just the guy sent ahead of the Messiah. He knew, and and John the Baptist believed that everything that he had been given, everything that he had was a gift from God. He knew who God was, and God was not him. Like, that's a huge deal, and it sounds super simple, but it's, it's a big thing for us to understand because most of us wouldn't say, I'm God, but we live as if we are of our own lives. And so what John the Baptist came to understand is that, hey, I'm not God. God is coming, and I've come to prepare the way for him, and He it wasn't me. And you see, that's where really humility begins. It comes from an accurate view of God which leads to an accurate view of ourselves. When we see God for who he is, we also see ourselves for who we truly are. God is holy. I am a sinner. He is God. I am not. I deserve wrath. He's given me amazing grace. I deserve nothing, yet he invites me in Christ into his great purpose and into his great Work. You see, these truths produce an incredible amount of humility in our lives. And if humility is not present in our lives, then we have drifted from the gospel because the truth about God and the truth about us will always produce humility in our lives because it will always lead us back to the gospel and to our need for Christ because apart from Christ, We are nothing, is what the Bible says. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors up in New York, describes it best uh, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you have not read that book, I would highly encourage you to read it. It's a very small book. It's only about 50 pages. You can literally read it in an hour. But listen to what he says about humility. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from the meeting Uh, meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, uh, uh, from a meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more or less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. I want you to hear that again. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more or less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. That's kind of confusing, but it makes sense if you think about it. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself, It is an end to the thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people, does that make me look good? Or do I want to be here? Because true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself at all. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. Think about that term, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness can bring. That's what humility does. It's forgetting about yourself and focusing on Christ and focusing on other people. And that's what truly humble people do. And that's what John the Baptist was characterized by. The second quality that distinguished John the Baptist is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Write that down. John knew his role and he faithfully lived out the role that he had from God. He was the front runner. God had sent him to prepare the way for the Messiah and he faithfully walked out that purpose. What if I told you today that God actually has a clear purpose for your life? Not just John the Baptist. Like, you know, it's easy to think an angel appeared to John the Baptist and basically showed him what he was supposed to do. But the, the scriptures make very clear for us as believers today, that I can stand here and say, listen, without a shadow of a doubt, I can tell you God's purpose for your life. You don't have to ask, you don't have to pray, God, what is your will for my life? None of that. In God's word, he has laid out very plainly and very clearly what his purpose in our life is. The fir- or it is to know him and to make God known. Like, that's God's purpose for your life. The ultimate aim of your life is to know Christ in relationship with Christ and to make him known, to follow Jesus and become a fisher of men. is his invitation, right? So it's following Christ, becoming a follower of Jesus, growing as a disciple, and then also going out and helping other people follow uh, Jesus, to be saved and to walk out the Great Commission. Now, we know what the Great Commission is, Matthew chapter 28 18 through 20 were Jesus' last words to his disciples, to his believers. It's called the Great Commission. Here's what he said Then Jesus came to his disciples and said, This right before he goes back to heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that may not sound like a bold statement, but after you've raised from the dead, and you know, and people know that you've raised from the dead, that is a very big statement. They believe that all authority has been given uh, to him on heaven and earth. And then he says, Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now notice the bookends of the Great Commission. God has all authority on heaven and on earth, and then he's also going to be with you. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Well, making disciples is, is difficult. It really is hard to do. And so nothing is gonna make you trust God's authority and lean into God more than trying to live out this purpose that he's put on your life, which is to make disciples of all nations. Well, Billy, how do we make disciples? How do I live in this purpose? Well, if you're not a Christian, it's not his purpose right now. If you're not a Christian, God's purpose is that you would believe and that you would be reconciled to God, that you would surrender your life to him. But if you are a Christian, then his purpose is for you to make disciples. How do you do that? Well, he gives us three uh, verbs to help. Go, baptize, and teach people to obey, right? And so this is the idea of discipleship, and discipleship is a life-on-life thing. It's not a class you teach. Uh, It's not a -a once-a-week meeting with a person. Discipleship is truly choosing to invest your life. It's going to a person that's lost. It's teaching them about Christ, inviting them into the same relationship and purpose that Christ has invited you into, which will lead to baptism, and then it's teaching them to obey. It's not saying, all right, hey, you're baptized, you're good. No, it's saying, hey, let's learn to live this purpose out together. And so the question really comes off the back end of this is, are you walking in that purpose? Like, are you faithful to what God has called you to do? I've not met a whole ton of Christians that are just faithful to go and make disciples. Like, if I could encourage you to do one thing with your life, it would be to go and make disciples of all nations. You say, Billy, I don't know how to do that. I'm still trying to figure this thing out myself. You're the best type of disciple maker. The best type of disciple maker is a person that's trying to learn how to follow Jesus and just brings people along beside them and says, hey, let's do this together. Nowhere in there does he say, hey, you need to be perfect before you make disciples. Hey, wait for uh, maturity and then go make disciples. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says, now go and make disciples. Are you making disciples? Are you faithful the same way that John the Baptist was? And then the third characteristic and quality we see of John the Baptist's life is service. John the Baptist was a selfless servant. Uh, I must decrease he must increase. Just think about that statement. It was not about him. And there's so much freedom in realizing that your life is not about you. You know, I've made you say it before, but it's just waking up every morning and just looking in the mirror and saying, hey, it's not about you today. Like, there is some freedom in that. And if you're not doing that, you need to do that because it is important that we understand that this life is not about us. We were bought with a price. We're, we're about Christ You know, John the Baptist understood what few people ever figure out in this life, and that's that the greatest blessings in this life come through sacrificially serving other people. Jesus taught this, and listen, it it feels upside down, and if you're not a Christian and you don't trust God, you're gonna be like, Billy, you're full of it, because it sounds like it will not satisfy you, but Jesus taught this. He says, it's only when we lay our lives down that we truly find life. He would even go on to say is, it's only when we die to ourself that we truly find life. He said, Billy, that's the most confusing statement I've ever heard in my life. He compares it to a plant. And he says, listen, it's only when a branch with seeds falls to the ground and dies, that they're planted into the ground and fruit is being produced. And so if you wanna live a successful life in the Christian life, it will come through dying to yourself and coming alive to the things of God. The greatest people in the kingdom of God are those who give their lives away in service to other people. I mean, he, even with his disciples, John and Peter just arguing like, hey, who's going to be greater? Who gets to sit to your right, to your left? Who gets the crown? Who gets the bigger mansion? And John, literally, Jesus turns to him and said, what are y'all talking about? The greatest in the kingdom of God is the person who comes to serve. And so service is an incredible, incredible quality that we all need to possess. So that's my question is, would you say right now, currently, that your life is characterized by those three things, humility, faithfulness, and service? I'd be willing to bet all of us have room to grow in each of those things. And you say, Billy, well, how do I grow in them? Well, you grow in them by focusing on Christ, like learning more about who he is, Walking with Him, as we walk with Him, those three things will be produced in our life. Second thing I want to show you in this passage is the right view of Jesus. He said, Billy, what are you talking about? Well, this whole series called The Real Jesus that we're in right now is about a correct view of Christ. I've told you before, we live in a world where people make up whatever they want about Jesus and they're a Christian. And whatever they want to believe about Jesus, they just believe that and they're still a Christian. And it's absurd, uh, honestly. Uh, And it's not okay. Like to be a Christian, to be a disciple of Christ, then we must follow the Christ of the Bible. And the Bible reveals Christ to us. And if we're choosing to believe things about Christ that aren't in his revelation, then we have gone astray from following Christ. That's why we're studying the book of John to see Who is this Jesus, and do I want to follow him? Have I committed my life to follow this Jesus? And so it's important that we have a right view of Christ because when we do, it changes everything. It really does. John the Baptist's whole goal here is to show us how great Jesus is. Listen to him. He must increase. I must decrease. He is the Messiah. I am not. He is so great that I'm not even worthy to bow down and tie the shoestrings of his sandals. Not only John the Baptist, but the author John, the apostle John's whole goal is to show us how great Jesus is. He, is. he who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is God. He is creator. He is the Christ. Think about verse 35. He says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything, somebody say everything, everything in his hands. I want you to think about the implications that statement. If God the Father has placed everything into the hands of Christ, then that means when we get Jesus through salvation, what do we get? Everything. Everything. This is why Christ is a treasure. Because in Christ, we literally get everything that we need. We don't need anything this world has to offer because everything that we need, everything that we want, the deepest desires of our heart are given to us when we get Christ. And when we begin to see that, the level of Christianity goes to a whole different level in our lives. Because if you're anything like me, there's this constant drift towards looking to things in this world to satisfy you. But if I knew that I had everything that I needed in Jesus and I walked in that every day, I'd be a lot more focused on Christ and a lot less focused on the things of this world. Not only, John, the Baptist's goal is to show how great Jesus is. Not only the author, John, but the whole goal of the Bible is to show us how great Jesus is. I want to just take one passage in Colossians uh, that Paul wrote, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And I just want to show you this. And I could take a 100 different passages in the Bible, but this is just the easiest one to do. So Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let me read it to you. He is the image, talking about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He sustains everything. He is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Somebody say first place. How many of you guys love to win? Anybody just like to win in here? I mean, yeah, you don't have to be ashamed of it. I love to win. Well, here's the thing. Ricky Bobby made a statement. (laughs) That statement was, if you're not first, you're last. And Paul's basically saying the same thing right here. It didn't originate with Ricky Bobby, it originated with Paul. Paul's saying, because of who Christ is, he deserves to be first place in everything. And that everything is also in our lives. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So again, follow Paul's logic here. He says, Jesus is first. He's the creator of everything. Everything was created by him, for him. He sustains everything. Jesus is not one of many beautiful things God created. Jesus is the creator. So he's first. But secondly, he says, Jesus went first. This God, Paul says, pursued a relationship with us when we weren't looking for him. He went to the bloody cross where he experienced torture and humiliation so that he could buy us back voluntarily. He didn't have to, but he chose to because he loves us and he loves you. And so he's first and he went first. And therefore, Paul makes this bold statement that he should be first in everything. And so Paul's saying, therefore, we should put Jesus first in our lives. That's the only rightful place for him to be. If he's not first in your life, he's last. Jesus doesn't come to be a part of your life. He comes to take over your life. He is a king. And we submit to his kingship and his lordship and we begin to follow him. This means Jesus should have first place in our hearts, in our affections. He should be the one that we love the most more than anything. This means that Jesus should be first in our obedience. That means what he wants should be the first consideration in everything that we do. This means that he should be first place in our priorities. His agenda should rule our lives. He should come first in all of our decision making. This means that he should be first place in our time management. Does God get the first and best of our time? How quick are we to give our time to other things? And the first thing that goes from our schedule is our time with God, our time valuing and prioritizing the things of God. This means that Jesus should be first in our money. Are we giving Jesus our first and our best, or do we just give him leftovers? Do we even consider God, when it comes to the way we budget our money, God doesn't deserve our leftovers. He deserves our first. He deserves our best. He doesn't deserve part of our lives. He deserves it all. We sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We give everything to Christ. So here's my question. Is Jesus the greatest in your life? Is Jesus first in your life? Or is he just a simple important part of your life. Jesus didn't come to be an add-on to your life. He came to be your life and your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction is found when he is your life, not just a part of it. He didn't come to just be uh, just prioritized during a certain day or during a certain thing. He wants to be your life and when he is in his rightful place in our lives, when he is supreme in our lives everything will change everything and that's what Jesus and that's what John goes on to say number 3 the decision before us again John's motivation in this text and really in the whole gospel is clear he wants you to believe and he's already shown us his hand he's already told us in John 20 30 and 31 these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name and listen he's made a strong case already in the first three chapters and we still have uh, plenty of chapters to go almost 18 and here's the reality there's really only two categories of people in this world those who believe and have surrendered their lives to Christ as both their Savior and Lord and those who don't believe and have not surrendered their life to Christ and listen, we live in the Bible Belt. I say that word all the time. We live in a place where cultural Christianity is the normal Christianity here. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that we're born in the South. We're born in Georgia. We're born into most likely a family that went to church. And so for some reason, because our family went to church or because we're born where we are, we're a Christian by nature. Just it intrinsically just comes on to us. The problem with that is it's just not the Bible, and it's not true. Christianity is a decision to turn from our nature, our born nature, and turn and say, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for God. And it's a surrendering of our lives to Christ. And the reality is, if we're not surrendered, we do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible because when we believe, we will surrender. It's what we see all throughout scripture. If we do not believe he's God, if we do not believe he's the ultimate treasure, if we do not believe that in him we gain everything, we will not give our life to him. And so how mean, how unloving would I be as a pastor to sit up here and tell you, hey, This Christianity you're living is okay, like it's good. (laughs) Like you can come to church. You can can claim Christianity, say you're a Christian. And you can do all that and never have to surrender. Never have to give God everything. Never have to place your life up under his lordship. I could tell you that and we'd leave here, we'd feel great about it. You could go about your way and do whatever you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. But I'd be lying to you. And that's what John gets to the bottom of this passage, verse 36, and he says, he says, whoever believes, there's great reward. And that reward is eternal life. But he says, whoever rejects, and whoever doesn't believe, there's terrible news. And that news is God's wrath remains on you. And so listen, I I don't know where you are today with God. But listen, there's no greater passage that brings us face to face with the reality of the situation this morning. So the question is, is, do you believe? Have you surrendered to Christ or does the wrath of God remain on you? And the good news is if you're here and you say, Billy, I've never surrendered, the invitation of Christ is before you. He's done everything necessary to save you, to take you from a child where the wrath of God is on you to move you into the category of a chosen son of, a, of righteousness, right standing with God so that when God looks at you, he doesn't even think about punishment anymore. His favor rests upon you and he wants to use you to do incredible things. But it starts with surrender. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. If you're in this room today and you say, Billy, I, I've never had that moment. I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've thought I was a Christian my whole life, but I've never given God everything. Well, this morning, today's the day of salvation. There's great reward for you. The joys of salvation are endless. Eternal life can start today. And that's the invitation of Christ. And I want to ask you to be bold. If that's you and you say, Billy, that's what I want. Today's the day. Would you just lift your hand right where you are? We want to pray for you. We want to talk to you. Anybody in here? You say, Billy, that's me. Raise it high. Don't be ashamed. You'd say, Billy, that's me. Anybody in here? I'll give you a second else. Say me. That's me. So, Father, here's our prayer. God, would you create in us your heart. God, we want to be a people that are characterized by the same qualities that are characterized by John the Baptist. God, we want to be humble. And God, we know that humility is found through seeing you for who you are. And God, we want to be faithful God, you've invited us into your purpose. God, would you create in us a desire to live for you and to make disciples? And God, you've also asked us to be servants, to lay our lives down and sacrificially serve you and to serve others. So God, would you create that in us? God, would we be a church that are characterized by those qualities? Father, that's our prayer. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for salvation. God, we thank you for the work that you do in our lives. God, you don't give up on us. God, you continue to pursue us. So God, would you grow us into that this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, would you stand and sing?